One interesting statistic I might throw out there is if you look more holistically at companies in that growth, what you typically see varies by industry. So you see about 80% of growth coming from the core and 20% coming from adjacencies that break out. I think qualitatively, what we would say, ESG is probably not that different. Where you have a lot of innovation happening within the core, it's really about the balance of how much can you also do through adjacency or breakout. From McKinsey and Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Rebecca Dougherty, who's here today for our discussion on how ESG can enhance profitable growth. ESG represents environmental, social, and governance issues, and it's often viewed as an area of risk or challenge, something that companies have to mitigate. But our recent research affirms that ESG can actually contribute meaningfully to growth when your broader strategy supports it. You can read more about this in our new article, The Triple Play, Growth, Profit, and Sustainability, or just keep listening to our conversation with the authors. As always, we'll also include a link to the article in our show notes. Now, I'd like to introduce our guests. Rebecca Doherty is a partner in our San Francisco office and co-leads our growth and innovation strategy practice. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. And dialing in from our Stuttgart office, Claudia Campbell is an associate partner and a core member of our sustainability practice. Claudia, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us, Sean. And Werner Rehm is a partner in our New Jersey office and a leader of our capital markets, M&A, valuation, and financial analytics team. Werner also co-leads our work in investor relations and communications. Werner, great to have you back with us. Always great to see you, Sean. Werner, let's start with you. Uh, profitable growth is the ultimate goal of most businesses. And in this new research, you found that investments in ESG can actually accelerate profitable growth and deliver even higher shareholder returns. That may come as a surprise to some of our listeners who might assume that driving sustainable growth requires trade-offs where companies might have to forego revenue or profit for the sake of society and the planet. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the research you did to reach this new conclusion? Yeah. First, in general, and, and maybe even as a disclaimer a bit, the link between ESG efforts and capital markets return is sort of still nascent in the analytics. There are a lot of analysis out there, but sometimes even on the same data set, people come to different conclusions. And this new effort, this new research that we did really started by looking at what are good companies in the sense of fundamentals, growth and margins, which, which drive value, and how does ESG affect those versus those that might not be that great in growth and margins? So there is a reasonably clear indication that the fundamentals remain key and that you know ESG drives growth and margin, which implies there's a significant resource allocation needed, maybe even restructuring towards the new growing businesses to create shield of value. Thanks, Warner. So, Claudia, can you take us through how you conducted this analysis? So, what we have done is a couple of different analyses. Firstly, we have asked investors um, what they expect from ESG. And what you can see is that most investors do expect moderate premiums. Not a lot, but at least between 5 and 10%, with cash flows and risks being equal. Roughly about half of the investors say that ESG initiatives matter. And the other half says that either they only matter if they have a direct effect on cash flows and risk, or they don't matter at all. 
which is the really the minority. And so we were asking, why is that and where does that come from? And what we found is that if we correlate ESG scores, and this is true for all ESG scores, independent of which uh, provider you use, you correlate them with financial metrics, you basically do not see anything. This might be given the early stage of the the scoring methodology, might also be given short timeframes that we have as of today um, to look at when, when looking into ESG scores. But interestingly enough, if we look at the improvement of companies, that is different. Companies that improve their ESG score over the given time frame fared better than companies that deteriorated. Now, only 54% of the companies actually are improvers and have that positive access to you, right? So we understand that if you talk to an executive and you say, look, if you improve with ESG, you have a 4% access chance of improving your TSR. That's probably not going to move the actions of an entire company. And what we were thinking of is how can we actually also find what drives this outperformance? And so what we try to do in our analysis is really to eliminate ESG and to look into what's driving the performance of a company separately. So we try to get behind the questions, are these only good companies that happened to invest in ESG and therefore also had good scores? Or are these companies that outperform because they also invested in ESG? Thanks, Claudia. So it sounds like you relied heavily on ESG scores as part of this article. We know that different providers and companies can arrive at these scores using varying methodologies. Are you seeing these metrics now starting to converge and standardize? And where do you see them going? So as of today, we see that different scoring providers look at different underlying matrices, and that's a large caveat to these analysis, of course. So when we did the analysis, we looked at many different providers. The numbers are based on the Standard & Poor's sustainability ESG scores. They are very similar if you look into other providers. Got it. Thank you. So. Let's talk a little bit about how you set up the analysis. We looked at listed companies and we split them into industries and geographies so that companies would effectively only be compared to actual peers. And then we looked into three dimensions. The first one is economic profit. So we looked into companies that generated higher economic profit than their peers, economic profit being profit minus the weighted average cost of capital. On the other hand, we looked into their revenue growth. So companies that grew their revenues faster than their peers. And on the third dimension, we looked into ESG outperformers. And ESG outperformers are defined as companies that improve their ESG ratings faster than their peers, or that started at a very high level in the top 15 percentile of their industry and regional peer group and improved even further from there. Okay. So you identified companies that outgrew their peers, they had higher economic profit than their peers, and they outperformed the money SG. Rebecca, can you walk us through the findings then based on this? 
One point I may just add is we only looked over a four-year period, over 2021. The reason for this specific analysis that we looked over four years is because uh, of the nascency of ESG ratings, as Werner and Cloudy were talking about previously, right? Not only are different providers not really fully converging yet, um, but there's just not as much history there. But it was really interesting because as we look at these elements independently, right, what you actually see is quite frankly, doing one of these is not enough. I think we all know this intuitively, but, you know, growing faster than your peers, not enough to outperform. Being more profitable than your peers, also not enough to outperform. And interestingly, those who only outperform on ESG actually tend to do worse than their peers. So these three elements are all very important. And historically, we've talked about growth outperformers and how growth and profit together really generate 5% excess TRS. So the art question was, you know, really taking this as a foundation, looking at companies that do well, you know, if you do ESG on top of it, does that actually help you do even better? Rebecca, if, if I may, though, the provocative headline is that ESG doesn't save a bad strategy. If you're underperforming on other areas and you're great at ESG, it will not help you and you will likely underperform the capital markets as of now. But, Absolutely. Know, I also do want to caution that I would argue that the goal of strategy is not to improve your ESG score. I think the goal of strategy, we'll talk a bit about this, is going to be how can you, you know, be a good corporate citizen and benefit from this in the sense of growth, margin, sustainability, sustainable portfolio, et cetera. I can't prove this, but I suspect if you do good things, good scores will come. Rather than uh, a couple of years ago, people talked about re-engineering scores and optimizing scores. But, you Absolutely. Know. You know, I, I actually like that point, right? There's this bit of like, you know, do you manage, you know, to, to, to your point, overall doing good and just having a good overall strategy, or do you kind of manage, quote, unquote, to the test or to the score? Where we really thought things were interesting is when you looked at the intersection of these things, right? As you as you recall, you know, Werner eloquently said, right, a good ESG won't save the company won't save the strategy, right? And neither just being good on growth or just being good on profit. But as you start to put things together, that's where I think you start to see a bump. So historically, we've looked a lot at the intersection of growth performers, outperformers, and profit outperformers. There's a 5% outperformance of your peers in excess TRS, which is significant. What's interesting is if you take that group of outperformers and then you actually put ESG outperformance on top, you actually see 7% excess TRS above your peers. So what's interesting here is, you know, you can do well while doing good, if you will, but you can actually even do better, right? You can do better than your peers. It's really interesting that we found here is, you know, not only are you returning this higher excess TSR at 7%, but you're actually growing faster, right? Or you're likely to grow faster than those are, that are just growth outperformers. And, and, and it's pretty impressive, right? So what we found is that of the average company, of all companies, less than one in four companies grow at above 10% revenue taker. But if we look into triple outperformance, it's more than one out of two, right? With an annual revenue growth of above 10%. Got it. So the trifecta is then where companies want to be. Revenue growth is good. Profitable growth is even better. And profitable growth that advances a company's ESG priorities is actually best. Rebecca, what did these companies do and what did they get right to actually successfully accomplish that triple play? 
So there were five things that we saw, you know, through looking, you know, through our experience working with companies through look digging into case studies outside in. And these five things really kind of stood out to us. The first is perhaps obvious, but it's important to have a fundamentally good core strategy and to really think about not just growth and profitability, but how you also integrate ESG into this. It's really the three integrated in together to your long range strategy and thinking about your overall portfolio and your overall moves over a long term that really set the foundation. And then within that, there's a piece around, you know, innovation, right? And really innovating your ESG offerings, right? So how do you think about, you know, building an innovation engine to move into pockets that, you know, the consumers are demanding, right? And thinking about it from an ESG lens, as well as just an overall, you know, um, what is a good business to be in lens. Number three is on M&A. You know, so we've done a lot of work, um, or my colleagues have done a lot of work more broadly on programmatic M&A and how you think about using that to move, um, you know, to, to either make a stronger core or move into stronger areas. And here, you know, we've seen companies really take this M&A lens and apply it to an ESG theme to really capture growth pockets at a faster pace than they can, you know, do organically. And so it's really a com- combination of two and three that can be, you know, a, a big accelerator. And just to clarify for our listeners, we describe a programmatic M&A approach as pursuing a series of small or mid-sized deals around a particular theme over time. So in this case, it might entail investing assets and capabilities in a priority ESG area. Rebecca, just to recap, so you've got a strong core strategy, you're innovating your ESG offerings, and you have a robust programmatic M&A program. What else do you need to do? You need to communicate what you're doing. You need to report and communicate it transparently, right? And this is from when you have your strategy, even before you've made some of these moves, you know, to kind of proving out to the market that you've made them and then, you know, moving forward. Say, this is the overall strategy. This is how ESG fits in, right? This is the type of result you're going to see. And then, you know, you can imagine, you know, three months later, six months later, when we'll start to see the results, you report that back and that builds the confidence uh, as well, right? Into an investor community. And finally, there's this piece around um, embedding the strategic priorities in the organizational DNA. So this can't be something you do off to the side, right? It needs to be something that really is in the day-to-day and um, really is led um, from the, the from the top, if you will, right? It's not, hey, this is a chief sustainability officer that's going to take on some of this, right? It's something that, you know, the, the, the business leads really take as part of their mandate and really embed it into their organization and thinking about, you know, how do you make it part of um, leaders' strategic priorities, how you measure it, and how you really do this well. Thanks, Rebecca. So one question that I've got is, would the aspect of ESG that you should focus on vary by industry? So for example, in a carbon intensive industry, perhaps the E might be the big thing to focus on. And if that's the case, what are the ones where you see the S and the G really, really get emphasized? Claudia, maybe you could share your perspective on this. Yeah, sure. Very happy to. And let me start with a couple of examples and then Rebecca and, and Werner, please jump in here as well. So yes, maybe to start off with the S, we see many different aspects of the S. One is for sure the correlation with talent. The other one might be obvious if you look into different industries. So let's say you look into mining. We have companies that do very well in engaging the communities that they operate in. And that, again, creates a distinctive competitive advantage for their mines. It creates less risk and less disruptions within their mining operations. 
And so you have a strong um, link on S uh, for these companies as well. I think the hardest factor to grasp for sure is G. We see less of outperformance on, on, on G where you can set yourself uh, really distinctive. We do see that in banks or in, in, in high-risk industries that have very, let's say, strict governance. But the governance, again, relates to E or S. So, so here there's always a bit of overlap. Yeah, this, this is exactly right. And we know from a survey of chief investment officers that we did last year that when, when you ask what's most important by industry, it is actually for financial institutions that the governance is the most important aspect of this. On the S side, there are obvious industries, pharma, health insurance, where the access is most important uh, 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 rather than sort of the E part. Maybe let me add one more uh, very interesting example that I particularly like that combines the problematic M&A strategy with the S dimension. We looked into cosmetics as one example, right? And we see that there's a conglomerate, basically. And what they really got right is that they had over roughly 10 years a very problematic M&A strategy and all of these cosmetic brands paid into their value proposition on outperforming, on catering to different diverse backgrounds, but also catering to different needs, different skin types, but and then engaging broader around the S dimension in a variety of uh, aspects, right? And this company was really able to create a distinctive um, advantage in terms of TRS. Um, just and, and here I think you see very well how this just tied into their overall strategy. It was never and never disjunct from the overarching strategy, right? Um, and I think so, so this is so core that you don't have that um, health and safety strategy or, or ESG strategy that runs somewhere delegated uh, in your organization, but it really has to basically enhance your overall strategy and, and fit and tie into this. So let's go a little bit deeper in how to innovate on ESG offerings within a company. Who typically owns that? Is it in the purview of a chief sustainability officer, or is it typically part of, say, a corporate innovation group? Well, Becca probably has more thoughts, but I suspect it's just like innovation for any other product. We used to think that ESG is sort of something separate, but in the end, it's just a consumer and a market movement and then the demand shifts and it might shift because of governmental intervention like we see in you know in the ev market in certain countries or it might shift because of consumers shifting like we see in sustainable food we see in non uh, non uh, animal protein and so on and so forth yeah so what we see m most broadly you know that there's there's multiple ways you can actually do it organizationally but what's most important is that it's not off to the side and I think, Verna, your point very much on, you know, ESG not being a separate thing, but really is integrated into broader innovation. So taking a CPG for example, how innovation is kind of really embedded in their DNA and all this done, quite frankly, a lot of times within the business unit, even if there's an overarching kind of chief innovation officer, chief sustainability officer, if you will, it's kind of all brought together. And so it could be like, for example, sustainable, uh, like alternate proteins, for example, but it can also just be like the way you package um, and, and a lot of the and that has kind of led to other, you know, innovations, if you will, just the way the pipeline is tested. 
So I think what's most important is a lot of, you know, some of the innovation will happen within business units and the incentives are set up that way. Um, but sometimes there is a chief innovation officer, if you will, that is looking at things more broadly and kind of bringing it all together, maybe an earlier incubation. So there can be a few models. And I think, a, you know, there's not one best model that works. And maybe it depends a bit on your industry, depends a bit on what your overall strategy is and kind of how it fits in alongside M&A. But I think the core thing is that it really is integrated in and there needs to be business ownership of it, right? Because if you do do it in a separate group, you know, how is it going to fit in and how are you going to run it long term? What I really like about Claudia York example earlier on the cosmetics company is, you know, they did all those things right and really put it into one value prop. But what they also did is they did it early in the early in the market, right? Because what we also saw is a lot of the peers kind of copied, if you will, and kind of did similar, you know, different, but similar type of acquisitions and tried to get into a sustainability type of value prop, but it didn't resonate as much um, with the market or with consumers because they hadn't really carved out that space as their core strategy and kind of, you know, really owned it early on. And so that first Mervo piece, I think is quite important as well, right? So I think if you think about your business, there's a bit of, you know, how do you think about what my overall strategy is and genuinely what fits in and not just copying others? So, you know, there will be an element of, hey, this is a hot space, you know, how do we go after it? Because the trend is super, super important. But this kind of what is my competitive advantage and what is my ownership advantage and in terms of how I apply it becomes quite important. That's great. So your research ultimately speaks to the impact that this can have on increasing shareholder returns. But this also brings up the question, how do you really effectively communicate the investments you're making in ESG and the progress that you're making in such a way that you actually get credit from the capital markets uh, in the form of higher returns or higher share prices? Yeah. So from our chief investor officer survey, when we ask, how do you think about ESG in general, sort of in your investment decisions, basically 80% said, you know, we systematically assess how this might drive cash flows. And then in addition, some of them said, this is sort of in specific industries. So for instance, in industries like software, some of them might just ignore it at the moment because it's not the most urgent issue in the industry, right? But when you are in a heavy carbon intensive industry, specifically like materials or energy, that is the question. It is, it is, it is to a certain extent what you're doing, but how would it drive cash flows? And then what's interesting was how do you think about enabling this given that data is available for a lot of companies? 95% of the SP companies, SP 500, give detailed ESG data. And the answer was well, we're struggling to have robust methods to sort of measure the long term value of all these investments. And then the second one, unsurprisingly, standardization, disclosures, ratings, mechanism. But that first point is really interesting, right? Three quarters or so of the investors across industries struggle with linking what we're doing in investing with sort of long-term value impact. And that is the opportunity. We believe that we got to move as the corporate world from ESG reports with lots of details and annual reports with lots of ambition to something that moves these together. So for instance, in you know the company overview, where are we in the share of products and assets, right? You know, where are you in diversification? What does, have, does anything change? And, and how has it helped you, right? 
when you talk about the market position, right? How much of your market do you think will shift to more sustainable products? My example is always EV versus um, refrigerators, right? It's very clear that if you don't have uh, an EV portfolio as a car company, in 10, 15 years, you won't exist anymore as a car company. It's not so clear what that means for refrigerators because we're not going to buy more or less refrigerators. It's unclear how much consumers will pay for a decarbonized steel in your stainless steel refrigerator. So what do you think about your market top-down sort of thinking as management? Therefore, if this is what's happening in the market, what's your portfolio strategy? There are going to be some hard discussions as we see, for instance, you know, should a, uh, a traditional upstream oil and gas, gas company own a wind farm or not? Are they the best owner of this, right? What are the opportunities that are material and how does this link? And then, you know, growth strategy. There are some great examples, as I mentioned, in consumer packaged goods, where they're saying our growth, 90, 80, 90% of our growth is from these new products. And clearly that's our growth strategy. But is there a first mover advantage in this? Or is it just something I have to do? Am I a leader? Am I a follower? What, what's my growth strategy in these industries? And then lastly, something on the, on the financials and, and the impact. Understood. So let me just take you back to the research again. In your group of outperforming companies, I think you found that when you put ESG outperformance on top, you actually see 7% excess total returns to shareholders above peers. That 7% of capital market outperformance is presumably an opportunity to reinvest further into your strategy. Is that what you actually see those triple outperformers doing? And if so, how are they deciding where to double down? In the most simple view, to me, this is like any other strategy. In the early 2000s, we talked about, you know, the IT innovation. Everybody started to have, you know, depending on your business, websites, online engagements, etc. And we need to learn that DNA. We need to learn where the growth is. If I'm not saying it's easy, but from a strategic perspective, it's, it's relatively simple question, which is what does the market want? Now, in some industries, you don't know yet because you have been traditionally, if you if you sold crude oil, you didn't have to worry about what the end consumer wanted, right? Now you might want to ask the question of what are the end consumers that actually might give me a premium for um, a, a lower carbon, you know, solution for this. So I'm not sure that quite answers the, the question, but I but I feel this is what is different here is it's a long term investment. It's probably more capital in many of these businesses than we are comfortable with to invest into uncertainty. But it's also very clear that we need to have the conversation and you know, we'll be able to avoid it. I think there's also an interesting point, but I think there's a real benefit here that we haven't quantified, but there's a bit of flywheel in terms of talent as well, right? I think you have a lot of talent, um, especially Gen Z, right, coming in that ask the questions around E, S, and G, right? And what companies are doing. You have the talent that's going to help you outperform as a company. And so there's just a bit of this uh, virtuous circle, if you will. Got it. That makes sense, Rebecca. I, I just also want to briefly come back for a moment to ESG ratings and the fact that aren't most ESG scores self-reported? So in some cases, they're probably not easily verifiable, right? Yep. So do you expect any kind of a framework then to be developed that's more of almost an audited measure? 
Well, we have some of this, right? I mean, um, especially in Europe, there are frameworks that are being debated um, that are fairly complex, that are adjusted by industry. Yeah, I think in, in the EU, we have the ESRS coming in, and in 2024, and there we will have mandatory auditing that uh, will even, yeah, will start with a limited assurance, but will even move into a reasonable assurance in the long term. Um, so here we have really very strong, uh, very strong laws already in place. And we have a lot of rating agencies already today that would only look into metrics that are externally communicated and thus have a minimum requirement right, of, of also being transparent in the reporting methods as well. To Claudia's point, let's say everything is audited. Different agencies right now put different emphasis on different metrics and different weightings and will continue to come up with different ratings. Even if the fundamental data was perfect, right? Different people will have different opinions on what matters, whether you know some score more on climate risk, other score more on company sustainability, uh, some score more on absolutes. So it is well, and the second aspect is you know, how do you audit some of this for one company? For instance, but you know, a big problem is the supply chain, right? It's really sort of a chain of audits where, you know, ultimately a lot of that goes got to goes back to crude oil. So I think it's really for for the purpose of value, it is really about this discussion on how does it relate to long-term value creation? What is the strategy? What are the opportunities? What are the risks? Who do you work together? Et, et cetera. And then yeah, you will have to do audits, it's going to be expensive, uh, it's going to be complicated, it's, but also what you have to and will have to report to make your investors comfortable is probably, I'm not going to say over and above, but it's sort of almost parallel to this. There might be only three numbers, quote unquote, that matter for your industry. So you have to add to these audited things, but but those might not be the numbers that you as a corporation and you as a, you know, a stra- strategist really have to focus on and really have to talk to your investors about. So, I mean, and, and, you know, there's a parallel to accounting, right? We have the audited income statement and balance sheets, et cetera, but we still have an investor day to talk about strategy and talk about what's our return on capital goal, but which is, which is not an audit metric, right? So, and I would, I would argue that investors look, you know, that investors look more at those metrics than EPS. Thanks, Werner. And of the triple L performers, do you have a sense for how many of them actually redefine their business models as part of their strategies? Or did most of them just look for ways to make their core businesses more ESG positive? Yeah, I think it's a bit split by industries, right? So if we look, for example, in the energy sector or or also oil and gas, then we see a lot of large transitions with really big portfolio shifts. Whereas in other industries, for example, transport or, for example, yeah, consumer goods. We see that companies would still remain consumer goods, but they would, for example, shift their product focus from producing, let's say, um, alcoholic drinks into a stronger um, shift of non-alcoholic drinks. Or we had the meat example before with companies that um, found new growth markets in, in vegan foods or vegetarian foods. In the numbers, it's important to note that we are looking at excess TRSs, and if you do multiples, excess multiples and similar ones. So a company that has only EVs is growing fast and has a high multiple, which at some point 
it's going to come down, but right now they're growing fast. A company that had in an ICE portfolio is now shifting, has a low multiple ICE portfolio and a high multiple electric vehicle portfolio, and their multiple stays constant, roughly, right? Because one replaces the other. And then a company that only has ICE and decides to not go that route, in theory, not sure that exists, but in theory would have a low multiple. And I think it's fair to say, just like in any other round we're going to reach, we will see young companies come up great ideas. They will run against capital constraints as they grow, as they grow globally. Um, and then bigger companies are going to buy them up and ramp them up. What a client of mine is they, they said, a little bit for a company with $300 million revenue in Illinois. Because they know when they buy that company with $300 million revenue in Illinois, three years later, there's billions of revenue globally because there's a global sales force. So that is, that is sort of what I expect in, in terms of where, where this innovation or a lot of this is going to come from. One interesting statistic I might throw out there is if you look more holistically at companies in that growth, what you typically see, you know, to Claudia's point, varies by industry, is you see about 80% of growth coming from the core and 20% coming from adjacencies that break out, right? I think qualitatively, what we would say, ESG is probably not that different, right? Where you have, you know, a lot of innovation happening within the core. Um, and it's really about the balance of how much can you also do through adjacency or breakout. And so, you know, I'd say majority core, you know, minority, but probably 20, 30% adjacency breakout, you know, varying by industry where you see some pivotal shifts happening, you know, for example, in energy. And so I think if you think about the portfolio more broadly, right, I would think about not just, hey, do I do it in my core business? Do I do it adjacency? Think about, you know, what is your competitive advantage? Think about what are the moves I can make over like a 10-year period? And how do I sequence that and think about that balance? Awesome. Okay. So I'm curious, what are your personal takeaways from the research that you conducted for this article? Maybe share some of the big biggest implications that you took away personally. Werner, why don't you take us through yours first? I am excited about the future in this research shows that it's still about the fundamentals. You have to find the strategy that addresses the market movements, the consumer movements, your B2B market movements figure out how to grow and go with that. It's not any magic. And if we all focus on that, we'll all be better off. Awesome. Thank you, Warner. How about you, Claudia? Yeah, for me, I think this this analysis really gives hope to, to two things. One is that we can actually do good while, uh, while also outperforming. And I think this gives really great opportunities for companies to work in that space. And, and it's possible to actually tackle that in a strategic and structured way, which I think is, is great news, right, to, to all of us. Absolutely. And Rebecca, you get the last word. <laughs> I mean, I think well, so well said by my colleagues. I don't have a ton to add. Um, but, you know, I think one thing we did not really talk about today is, you know, this the overall economic environment, right, the uncertainty. But I think a lot of the lessons that we've learned will play through the ebbs and flows of the economic environment. And, you know, could modify how companies think about it. But I think the fundamentals are there. And so I think, you know, 10 years from now, I'm really excited to see where the conversation is and what companies have done to really kind of outperform and make the world a better place. Rebecca, Claudia, Werner, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was a great conversation and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this important topic with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Sean. 
And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. We encourage you to read the article, Triple Play, Growth, Profit, and ESG on McKinsey.com. We've also included it in a link in the show notes. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks all the folks who have already done so. We really appreciate the comments and feedback and encourage you to please keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR where you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes. And you can also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our practice insights page at mckinsey.com SCF. Follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.